Thank you very much, Lloyd Food, for your very kind, maybe too kind introduction. And um, it's a pleasure and honor to be here this morning. And I would like to thank the organizers of um, this symposium here today for inviting me. And uh, I would like to share with you the topic that I was asked to discuss today, which is uh, Jewish values in the Israeli healthcare system. In order to understand what does a healthcare system have to do with Jewish values in a country where the legal code is a secular one, we have to look at history. And uh, I would like to start with the first slide, which is not history, because without local patriotism, I would be sinning towards my institution that was described um, so nicely by David Ford, the compliments that he gave me were exaggerated. The compliments that he gave to Shara Tzedek were a bit underestimation, but that's only humorously. So you can see here uh, the campus uh, with uh, the 1,000 beds that we have. You can see that, uh, well, it's not positioned very well. You could see the new building that we are building now. This is the Children's Hospital. This picture was taken a few months ago. It's now uh, near completion. We are the only major medical center in the center of Jerusalem. As you know, the one million people of the greater metropolitan uh, area of Jerusalem are served by four general hospitals. Two of them belong to Hadassah, two of them belong to us. Hadassah, because of historical reasons, was built on the western outskirts, the main campus, in Karem. That's because Ben-Gurion, who predicted that uh, I was raised in the 50s in Tel Aviv, and Ben-Gurion was considered a prophet for us. If you go to his uh, museum in Tel Aviv, you could see a quote from 1963 by Ben-Gurion, that in 25 years, communist Russia will collapse and one million Jews will come to Israel. That was really a prophecy. One thing Ben-Gurion did not predict, and that was the Six-Day War. And when he was approached by the Adassa women in 1959, and they asked him where should we build our new campus, he told them Jerusalem is limited to the north by Ramallah, to the east by the old city, which was not ours at that time, to the south by Bethlehem and Hebron, go as far west as you can. So this is then seven years later, eight years later, the Six-Day War broke out, and since then, Jerusalem is expanding mainly to the north. We see Neve Yaakov and Pisgat Zehev with tens of thousands of, of inhabitants, of people. Uh, to the east, the French Hill and the old city. To the south, Harkoma, Gush Etzion, which is part of the greater metropolitan area. So we find ourselves at Sharetzedek, really the hospital in the center of the city, which has bearing, definitely has bearing during an intifada when minutes count, if a bomb detonates in Mahane Yehuda market, it really counts if you bring them to the center of the city. You can see here the Bayit Bagan neighborhood just behind us. We are about one mile from the Knesset, so any minister or member of Knesset who collapses on the podium out of excitement will be brought to us and will try to save all of them, of course, regardless of their views or political party. And um, 
This center location is very important, but we really needed to accumulate the prestige and the trust of the people of Jerusalem, and today we are definitely the largest hospital in the city. But I did say that I came to discuss your Jewish values and the Israeli law, so in the very healthcare system, so let's move forward. So Israel is defined as a Jewish democratic state. Some people see it as a built-in conflict and contradiction. Democracy and to be Jewish, to be a state dedicated to Jews. So I would like to um, allude a little bit in a more uh, expansive and wide form to the term Jewish democratic state. In our Declaration of Independence, Hey Tafshin Chet, May 15, 1948, a few weeks before I was born, the word democracy is not mentioned. They declared, the founders of our country declared, we are here to establish a Jewish state in Eretz Israel. There were democratic elements in our Declaration of Independence. Equality between all its citizens was promised. Adequate representation to minorities in the Knesset and other state institutions was promised. But democracy was not mentioned. And from 1948 and 1992, the term describing Israel as a Jewish democratic state was not mentioned anymore. Anyway, the term, the term was coined in 1992 in a new basic law. Israel does not have constitution, and many claim that we do not have constitution because of the somewhat uneasiness of declaring ourselves with all justification, as I will allude to in a minute, a Jewish state and democracy that gives the same rights to all its citizens. But in 1992, the public debate progressed to such an extent that the Supreme Court and the Knesset could not avoid defining Israel as a Jewish democratic state and a line of few basic laws were enacted in Israel as a beginning of the Constitution one of them was the law of human dignity and liberty. And in 1992, in this law of human dignity and liberty, the term democratic Jewish state or Jewish democratic state was coined. And since then, we have severe public debate in Israel, running from the extreme right who required that Israel would be Medinat Halakha, a state, maybe the ultra-Orthodox, the extreme ultra-Orthodox, who would not recognize Israel until our legal code is purely based on halakha. And you want to those who are more moderate and are ready to see a Jewish state with democratic elements, and to the far left who sees Israel today and would like Israel to be a state of all its citizens, eliminating the Jewish aspect at all. But this is a small minority because the public debate in Israel definitely, according to every poll and according to many signs that I will enlist to you in a minute, is very, very Jewish. If you take the symbols of state in Israel, if you take the menorah, menorah Amidash, which is the state symbol, 
if you take our flag with the Magen David, and if you take our national anthem with Nefesh Yehudi Omiya, these are all overt stigmata of a Jewish state. I can also tell you that the Chief Justice Barak, a secular Jew in Israel, in 2003, only 10 years ago, end of 2002, again it was because he had to give a ruling, usually these rulings come before elections take place in Israel, before the elections there are always parties who represent the extreme, extreme right or extreme left, others want to disqualify the parties, the Supreme Court has to give ruling should they be um, allowed to submit their list and to run in the elections. And usually the Supreme Court in Israel ruled in favor because of emphasis on the democracy that everybody can run. You know that we have minorities in the Knesset. And uh, also there was a case with Kaf, the list of Rabbi Meir Kehana, Zechronoli Bracha, that uh, some authorities wanted to disqualify. And the ruling was given by the Supreme Court, and in 2003, Chief Justice Barak gave a minimal definition of Jewish and a minimal definition of democratic. What does it mean? So, by Jewish, he definitely declared in the Supreme Court ruling that every Jew can immigrate to Israel, unless you know the naturalization and immigration process is very, very quick once you prove you are Jewish that there will always be a Jewish majority in the state of Israel, that Hebrew will be the main formal language, that the many of the holidays and memorials are notifying the resurrection of the Jewish people, not only from the horrible Holocaust, which was recently, but from 2,000 years of diaspora. All this is in Chief Justice Barak ruling. What does it mean that Israel is a Jewish state? The minimal definition for a democratic state is, of course, what we know about democracy. Equal rights. He doesn't state, but he does state that there will be free, equal elections and that there will be separation of powers with an emphasis on the independence of the judiciary system. So here you have a formal definition of a secular Jew, how you combine a Jewish state that has all the justification to offend marginally democracy. I think we both describe with our history. Israel was founded on the ashes of the six million Holocaust victims. And many of us believe, we always say, that if there was no Holocaust, there would not be a state of Israel. Many of us maintain that if there had been a state of Israel earlier in the 20th century, there would be no Holocaust. So we have full justification to combine this Jewish democratic, even if democracy is not defined the way it is defined in this country. So, I try to explain what does it mean a Jewish democratic state. Just to show you from last week, this is the funeral of Rabbi Ovadia Yosef. 10% of the population of Israel participated in this funeral. 
and you can see in the funeral on the right hand side of this picture you can see there are policemen here but you can see people that have nothing to do with ultra-orthodox lifestyle people who are completely secular who mourn this spiritual leader in a way that merged with hysteria and with mass hysteria so yes, we are also Jewish in the way that we respect very prominent Jewish leaders and uh, I don't know if any other country in the world can boast 10% of its population participating in the funeral of any leader. So I try to explain why is Israel a Jewish democratic state and what does it mean. Let's discuss what are the implications on Israeli law. So the implication of Israel being a Jewish democratic state in the law comes from few aspects. One of them is really the law itself, the state. That's the law of return, as you know. The, Jewish get, the Jews get priority in being citizens of Israel. Some of them get the power from the Jewish culture. For instance, the law of education in Israel that enable few streams of governmental education, the secular and the mamlatidatik, the national religious, as long as it is Zionistic. I'm sure many of you are aware of the public debate in Israel about the ultra-Orthodox education that the country, the state, do not, does not want to support them, and it's a political issue, as long as the children do not learn some basic core studies like English, like mathematics, and like about civil Israel, what we call in Israel as Rahut. And some of the Jewish, of the Israeli law, really is based on Halakha, is based on the Jewish law. And this was the agreement of the first message that everything that has to do with marriage and divorce will be ruled according to Halakha for obvious reasons that do not have to be explained to this audience. And even minor laws in Israel are based on Halakha. Even the mere fact that there are limitations on raising pigs in Israel. That uh, in uh, Israel you cannot sell publicly everywhere chametz in Pesach. These are part of the laws in Israel that are purely based on halakha. Before talking about Jewish values in the Israeli healthcare system, and there are many of them as you will see later, I would like to describe to you the Israeli healthcare system. I think it's especially relevant to this audience who grappled today with the Obama care, and I know that uh, many of you, many the physicians among you, but not only the physicians, will uh, raise their head and say, well, we wish we would not have it. Some of you maybe are waiting for it. Actually, Israel has, since 1995, a national health insurance law. And as an Israeli citizen, I'm very proud, at least in the social justice that is embedded in this law. Because, uh, because according to this law, every Israeli citizen, in return for 4.8% of his or her gross salary paid as a health tax is entitled for a very, very wide basket of services. So you're talking about universal health coverage, a term that this country is trying to uh, cope with 
for decades. You remember the reform plan of Hillary Clinton when she was the first lady that failed completely. Obama is trying to cope with it now for better and for worse. I'm not passing judgment on the context, but in Israel it's a fact that we have it and very few developed nations have it. Here you see the Lancet of a couple of weeks ago and look what Japan's Prime Minister says on universal health coverage. I first and foremost will no efforts to incorporate universal health coverage as a crucial element of the post-2015 development agenda. I will reinforce Japan's assistance to developing countries to work with them to achieve universal health coverage. I think the health, the, the right for health is a basic citizen's right. And we in Israel recognized it long ago and enacted the national health insurance law that sometimes draws criticism. But I can tell you, as someone who chairs for the last two years the committee that decides every year which new medication, devices, diagnostic or therapeutic will be funded by public funding in Israel, I can tell you that there is not a single agent, a single medication that is life-saving, life-promoting, health-promoting that is not in the Israeli basket. And as an Israeli citizen, I take great pride in that. Yes, the pharmaceutical industry, if it comes up with a new agent that may prolong life of a patient with advanced cancer by a few weeks or by a couple of months, who are asked to say that this patient is not entitled to it. You will see later on in the lecture, and I don't have to tell this audience this fact, that sanctity of life is a core element in our beliefs and in our ethics. That's included temporary life, Hayesha. But when you have to prioritize, when you have to prioritize, and there is no nation in the world that can supply its citizens, everything that modern medicine has to offer from public funding, not even the richest country in the world where we are sitting now, where 40 million people have only emergency care and not more than that. So if this is the fact and this is an axiom, I am very proud in the Israeli basket of services that is financed from public funding and benefits every citizen of Israel even if we cannot include in the basket new medications that benefit patients but with a quality less than a certain threshold. The word quality, probably only a few of you are familiar with quality means, that's the acronym for quality adjusted life years. And when one has to prioritize medication, that's how you measure it. How much will it cost? It sounds horrible, but that's the only way to objectivize it. How much will it cost to prolong the life of a patient by one year, but this year should be a quality year and not a year of suffering? And every country has its threshold. It's common knowledge that if it's around, at least in Western countries, 30 to 35,000 dollars per year per patient in Israel it will be included in the Israeli basket, and I think basket of services, and I'm very proud of it. So, we are moving now from description of the Israeli healthcare system to various laws that are part of the Israeli healthcare and see the evolution 
how these laws contain Jewish values. So the first one, the first law I would like to discuss is the Patient Rights Act that was acted in 1996, 17 years ago. According to this act, everyone is entitled to quality care with respect and with dignity. There is an emphasis in this law on informed consent. Many of us who are in the field and treat patients believe that Article 15 in this Patient Rights Act is Gzerasha Tzibur Loyachola Modba. Actually, this article moved the healthcare system in Israel from the paternalistic approach of the early 20th century to the autonomy of the patient approach that characterizes the second half of the 20th century until today. According to Article 15 in the Patient Rights Act, before prescribing a medication to a patient or before advising him to undergo a certain diagnostic study, the healthcare provider has to sit with the patient and make him a partner to the decision process very early on, at an early stage, to explain what is this medication in layman terms. Language barriers will not be accepted by the law as an excuse. You have to explain the mechanism of this medication, what does it do, what are the expected side effects, what will happen if you do not get this medication, are there any alternative medications and why do you decide to prescribe this medication. It is time consuming and I also personally think that it's offending the autonomy of the patient not to hear and not to know what he doesn't want to know. So yes, autonomy of the patient, this is the banner of modern approach to medicine. I believe we went too far and again Article 15 in the Patient Rights Act in Israel is not fulfilled because nobody can stand the full meaning or the full recommendations, all the recommendations of this article. Now in Patient Rights Act there was a debate in the Knesset, I was part of this debate, the Social and Health Committee of the Knesset invites experts from various fields and I remember the, the debate on Article 10 which never appeared in this act. In Article 10 the title was The Right to Die with Dignity Article. Is the patient allowed to ask under certain circumstances to refrain from connecting him to life support systems and back in 1996 the members of Knesset could not reach an agreement on that, did not agree, and Article 10 was eliminated from the law back in 1996. There was no halakhic solution to that, and there was no political solution to that. The religious parties opposed this specific article, and there is no reference in the Patient Rights Act to the right of a patient to die with dignity. And then, nine years later, in 2005, we enacted the Dying Patient Law. I have to pay tribute to my dear friend, and actually a mentor, Rabbi Professor Abraham Steinberg, who is a senior pediatric neurologist at Shari Tzedek and the world-renowned bioethicist. He told me that he appeared in this forum a year or a couple of years ago. And uh, he was the head of a committee 
of 59 professionals, physicians, nurses, social workers, philosophers, rabbis, social workers, I think I mentioned, everybody who is relevant sat in four subcommittees in order to try to solve what every young physician on duty in any department, in any hospital in the world feels and knows on a daily basis. Being approached either by a patient or by a family, the family would tell him, please stop, Heref, no more. He's suffering, chances are small or do not exist. He's not the, he or she are not going to come out of this situation. Please don't connect him to life support system or pull the plug out. So what the politicians and Israeli society could not supply in 1996 to a certain extent, quite a limited extent, but it's a progress, was part of the dying patient law in 2005 and this was really the conclusion of a working committee, as I said, of 59, that said, how surprising, in the auditoriums and session rooms of Sharet Tzedek Medical Center, in order to come up with this law that was accepted at the Knesset in 2005 with a majority of 79 members of Knesset. I can't tell you what's the denominator. If we were present in the hall at that time, we were 80, 81, or all the 100. 20, but 79 is an overwhelming majority, including the religious parties, except Agudat Israel. What does this law say? And this is very important. The law says that if a patient abides by two criteria, one, he suffers from an incurable disease, a disease that medicine, at the time that the patient is before us, has no cure to. And the second prerequisite, and you need both of them, is that the patient suffers, the patient's longevity is estimated by two senior physicians to be no more than six months. Now the physicians in the audience know that we physicians don't know about a lot of things. But where we make major mistakes is in estimating how much remains for a patient to live. I always do quote this joke that appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine a few years ago of an oncologist that on April 1st, quite a symbolic date, we don't know, but that was the day, on April 1st, every year for the last seven years, gets a phone call from a patient to ask him, how are you this morning? And the answer is, I'm okay. And he says, I'm also okay, but you're stupid because you gave me three months seven years ago. So we are not accurate in estimating longevity. But we are talking about incurable diseases, and if two senior physicians agree that the patient estimated survival is no longer than six months, and the patient suffers from an incurable disease, the patient abides by the dying patient law. And I see this law as a victory of multiculturalism in Israel. I don't have to tell you that Israel is multicultural, multi-ethnic city, and Jerusalem more than the other parts of Israel, but Israel at large as well. So what is the most sacred rule to, secular, to secularism? Autonomy of the patient. What is the most sacred rule to religious people, to Judaism? Sanctity of life. 
This law is a magnificent combination between respect to the secular world, to autonomy of the patient, and respect to sanctity of life, and also reflects the right of the patient not to suffer. And with this, I must say that halachic authorities already for generations, I hope the rabbis in the audience will confirm that, agree that if you are talking about an incurable disease with suffering, endless suffering, you are not committed to bring back the patient to life of suffering if he suffers from incurable disease. According to that dying patient law, any patient who presents with these two criteria, longevity of six months and incurable disease, is allowed, not only allowed, the physicians are committed to respect a living will if he left one, if in the living will he asked not to be connected to life support system, or not to undergo dialysis, or even not to get antibiotics if he's in severe coma or if he's in a situation that he suffers from incurable disease and he has limited longevity. So much so that the Ministry of Health opened a registry of advanced directives given by patients in Israel and every department in every hospital in Israel when they are approached by family or by the patient, but many times the patient is comatose Sometimes he's already on a respirator, and we'll talk about that now. But if he's not on a respirator, if the physicians are approached by a family, and the family says he lives in advanced directive, that under these circumstances he should not be connected to life support or having any other procedure that will prolong his life, the physicians are committed to abide by these directives. This was a big innovation in Israel. I know it's not a big innovation here. And it was a breakthrough that this was accepted by uh, overwhelming majority in the Knesset. Why six months? Chayei Sha'a, temporary life, in our sources, are defined as 12 months. But uh, there is statistics, statistics to attest to more or less accurate assessment of longevity only up to six months, that's why the committee picked this number of six months. Agudat Israel voted against the law because Rabbi Yashiv, Zecher Tzadik Livrachau, as you know, passed away in Sharet Tzedek less than a year ago, at the age of 102, wanted three months. <coughs> he based it mainly because he did not have the trust in physicians and in their um, estimates of longevity, and that's why he directed his people in the Knesset to vote against. Now, I omitted one thing. Are you allowed by this law to disconnect patients from respirators once they are on life support system? The answer is no, because no halakhic ruler will allow that. So you see the Jewish values are embedded in this law, but maybe you will be surprised to hear that rulings approved connecting every respirator in Israel, and this has not been fully done yet, connector in Israel to a timer, to a Shalom Shabbat. Many times the scenario is that the EMS comes to a home of a patient who suffers from incurable disease, he stops breathing, he develops severe pneumonia, and the family 
are unaware and quickly he's put on a respirator. And when he comes to the hospital, you realize that he abides by this law, that he suffers from an issue of a disease and he has no more than six months to live. At this point, you are allowed to put the timer, which is put anyway, for 72 hours. And these facts are verified after 72 hours without a direct link between a kumaset, between an active act of a physician and termination of life, the respirator will stop functioning. Alpanar, you know, at the face of it, it looks like bypassing the problem. That's what many think of Shaun Shabbat. But I think the severity of the situation, the amount of suffering under these circumstances, led the committee and the halakhic rulers to allow it. I admit that the technical performance in putting, assembling in every respirator in Israel uh, a timer in order to activate this procedure is lagging behind, I suspect, because not everybody agrees with this ruling. I will be glad to hear the opinion of rabbis later on in our panel uh, regarding this specific point of a timer on a respirator in every Israeli hospital. So the dying patient law, and I can read to you from the law how the goal of the law was defined, and you will see that here we really see the result of the dialogue between the secular part of the population that autonomy is their basic rule and autonomy is the patient is above all and between the religious part that believes that the sanctity of life is above all. To a certain extent you can link it to my previous discussion of Jewish democratic state. I think it reminds you. And the goal of the law, of the dying patient law is as follows. This law regulates the medical treatment of the terminally ill patient based on an appropriate balance between the value of the sanctity of life, the value of the individual's autonomous will, and the importance of the quality of life. This law is based upon the values of the state of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, and on fundamental principles in the fields of morality, <coughs> ethics, and religion. I am unaware of other countries in the world that have such a patient, that have such a law. I think this law is really a pioneer in this respect and it really reflects the uh, Jewish democratic values of the State of Israel. Further on, in 2008, another very interesting law was enacted in Israel. Rabbi Fuld referred in his introductory remarks to the difficulties in Israel with organ donation. So after much deliberations, and I was involved, well definitely did not lead, the, the, this law was led by a uh, member of parliament, Otniel Schneller, a religious modern orthodox uh, Jew, who really could not see the 90 to 100 patients a year that die in Israel from lack of organs for transplantation. Now I would like to delve in a few minutes about the issue of organ donation and organ transplantation in Israel. First, I should say, there is no country in the world that does not cope with a gap between demand and supply of organs. In this country, 
where end-stage liver disease is very prevalent mainly because of alcohol, less so of hepatitis C. Right now, there are around 20,000 patients waiting for a liver transplant. You do around 5,000 transplantations a year. There is no shortage of transplant surgeons. There is no shortage of financial resources. The only problem is shortage of organs. Israel coped with the same problem. Right now in Israel, there are around 1,000 patients on dialysis awaiting kidney transplantation. And kidneys have a solution. You can be in dialysis, but the physicians among you know that dialysis is not an alternative to a transplanted natural kidney, definitely not to naive natural kidneys. Dialysis shortens life. Dialysis does not correct all the deficiencies and all the diseases caused by end-stage kidney disease. But at least you have dialysis. In heart and in liver, you don't have alternatives. Artificial livers are still in the making and are not very efficient. So the problem is that there is not enough supply of organs. The question is why? So here I have to discuss few medical aspects that some of you, I guess, are familiar with. And I'll take the state of Israel. There are parallel numbers in the USA. In Israel, annually, about 40,000 patients die. Those who see the number as high, I would like to bring to your attention that we have 170,000 babies born and around 20,000 olim. Can you go to Boston, the last one, the babies and the Olim and the new immigrants to Israel? So our balance of immigration, internal and external, is a positive one, almost the only country in Europe where we have a growth rate of 1.8% a year. Based on this balance, 170,000 deliveries, 13% of them in Charlotte Sedek Medical Center, and uh, 20, around 20,000 Olim Hadashim, new immigrants to Israel. But among the 40,000 who pass away every year, only around 300 pass away where the brain dies, not the heart dies. Many times, lay people ask, they ask me, what Rabovadia die of? Cardiac arrest? We all die of cardiac arrest. Except a small minority who is brought to the hospital after severe brain damage, either severe stroke or a motor vehicle accident, or other trauma, and you can pronounce them brain dead. The Harvard criteria for brain dead came forward in 1967. So brain dead is recognized by the medical community worldwide as death in every respect for already more than 40 years, for 46 years. There are exact criteria how to assess brain dead. I don't know if you are familiar with the Israeli poem, Nobody came back from a situation where he was pronounced brain dead. So we can all be rest assured that if brain death is assessed properly, it is an irreversible situation and it is considered death by medical criteria. More so, in the last few years, we have confirmatory tests. It's, it's not only that the patient in a, in a deep coma, that it does not respond to any external stimuli. 
that if you disconnect him from the respirator for five minutes, there will be no respiratory movement. That his basic reflexes, the popular reflex, reflex of the pupil, the reaction of the pupil to light, and the corneal reflex, the blinking when you touch the cornea, are absent. These are the basic criteria. Electroencephalogram, EEG, flat, no electrical activity. In the last two decades, we have confirmatory tests. We can stimulate the brain at certain area and see that there is no response. We can use a transcranial Doppler to assess blood supply to the brain, including the brain stem, and to see that there is no blood supply to the brain. So the medical community long ago, even before this confirmatory test, recognize branded as that in every respect. The best candidate, I'm sorry to use the word best here, for organ donation is a brain dead patient. If you wait for cardiac death, it's usually too late. The quality of the organs transplanted is inferior. Some of them you cannot harvest at all. Whenever I say in English the word harvest, my hair stands, I think it's a very bad word. And my colleague who chaired the Israel Hanfan Center before me, the head of Tel Aviv Medical Center, Professor Gabriel Barabash, coined in Hebrew, and I know that many of you know Hebrew, coined a very nice alternative term. Instead of saying harvest, liktsor evarim, we say lehantzil evarim. Lehantzil is a combination of the word lenatzel and lehatzil. To use the organs of someone in order to save the life of his friend or of the other one. So, Hansalat in Israel, to harvest the organs, is mainly from brain, brain dead patients. Now, I would not go into the halachic issues of brain death. Suffice it to say that most halachic rulers in Israel recognize brain death as death. But not everybody. Rabbi Yashiv did not. Of Shlomo Zalman Reuvach ruled, and it's in writing, that if there will be consensus among physicians that we have the technical facilities to prove that there is no vitality or viability in the last of the brain cells, in the brain stem, so he is the Mafreya rules that brain death is dead. Now, Israel is lagging behind in signing donor cards. About 10% of the population sign donor cards, while in most Western countries it's 20, 22, in Spain it is 30%. Now the supply of organs is dependent on signing donor cards because approaching a family when they lose their beloved one and they enter the intensive care unit and they see the monitor working and the chest going up and down because the patient is an artificial life support that we know in modern medicine will last between hours and days until cardiac death arrives. Under this situation, it's very difficult to convince them to consent to organ donation. But if the um, nurse, the transplant nurse, comes out and shows them a copy of a card that their beloved one signed, with their knowledge or without their knowledge, when he was alive, that facilitates things. Do we have only 10% signing rate on donor card because of the minority that do not recognize brain death? The answer is no. Take 
קיבוצניקס, השומר הצעיר קיבוצניק. There are not suspected to obey Rav Eliashim Rulings. Do we have 100% signing rate among the kibbutzim? Much less than 50? Probably twice the average in the rest of the population. There is something in Judaism, something kamaik, something that you cannot explain that the Jew would like to arrive whole to the grave. There were many PhD dissertations done in Israel on that. But I don't have time to go into that. I can analyze to you. Suffice it to say that resurrection, triatamitim, should not serve as a reason not to sign a donor card for two reasons. One, God Almighty who can resurrect, he needs really deliver. Someone who was amputated will not be resurrected. Secondly, all these organs, liver, heart, pancreas, intestine, kidneys, three to six months after the burial are not there anymore. They are absorbed in the ground, only the skeleton remains. So those who use resurrection and no halakhic rulers as a reason not to sign, definitely uh, have no reason to do that. But here we come to this 2008, the brain respiratory law, which also in my eyes is a victory of Israeli multiculturalism and Israeli tolerance to opinions of others. Because, first of all, this law says that you have to take a certain workshop, eight-hour workshop, in order to be certified to pronounce a patient brain dead. And I don't have time to go into you, into the, with you into the procedure. In every hospital in Israel, there is a brain death committee composed usually of the chief of neurology and an internist. But no one is licensed to pronounce a patient brain dead if he did not take a special course since this law was enacted in 2008. Other thing that the law say that we will not endorse the regular Harvard criteria of brain death. We require confirmatory tests. And every hospital in Israel got a transcranial Doppler machine and trained people to use it in order to prove that there is no blood supply to the brain and to the brain stem. And then the mainstay of the law is that it's the prerogative of patient or guardian to accept or reject. In other words, if a patient is pronounced brain dead in any Israeli hospital, the family will be approached they will get explanation, more or less, what I was talking about in the last 10 minutes about brain death. And if the patient did not sign a donor card, they will ask to consent to organ donations. If they agree, the procedure will take place. If they disagree, the wish will be respected and life support system will be continued until cardiac death arrives. And that's what the law says. Now, the choice of the family is binding for the medical team, and they have to do it. So, if we are talking about Jewish values in the Israeli healthcare system, this law of brain respiratory death that actually respects the ruling of different halachic rulers is an epitomization of this Jewish value in Israeli healthcare system. I could not conclude this lecture, and I do have a few more minutes to talk, without mentioning another law that is not directly related to the healthcare system. 
The law is based on the Pasuk Lota Moda Dam Reecha, Sefer Vaikra, not to stand idly by the blood of the neighbor. And you can see the Jewish value here, because the Good Samaritan law in countries where this law is enacted says that if someone sets out to help someone in danger, that he cannot be sued. But it's not mandatory to set out and help the one who faces immediate danger to his life. By the Israeli law from 1998 that was suggested to the Knesset with beautiful explanatory words by the late member of Knesset, Hanan Porat, whom I am sure you all know, says that one has to help a person who is in immediate civil danger. The good Samaritan is not good Samaritan, it's mandatory. You have to do it. It's true that the law says that if you call an ambulance, and even if retrospectively you could save the patient by not calling an ambulance, but doing a CPR, and you use these few seconds or minutes to call an ambulance, you abide it by the law. But the law makes it mandatory to offer help to anyone who is in immediate danger to life. It's true that the Savior is entitled to reimbursement of expenses. So all in all, I hope I help to shed light on the fact that Israel is different from other democracies. It is a Jewish democratic state. Israeli legal code is secular, but aspects of Jewish law are incorporated. And when we refer to the healthcare arena, there is a convergence of secular and Jewish law principles, and these are best exemplified by the dying patient law 2005 and the brain respiratory death law from 2008. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, I started with local patriotism, so I would like to end with local patriotism that is not directly related to the topic of my lecture, but it's definitely in honor of Dr. Schweber, who is here in the audience, one of the senior people in Israel who supervises hospital-acquired infections. And uh, we did in Shari Tzedek recently a very, I think the light should go off now, is it possible? Is anyone who knows how to do it? So I would like to show to you I would like to show to you a short video, it's three and a half minutes, that uh, where the actors are the staff of Sharai Sedek. It became viral on the net. We had 300,000 hits only in YouTube Israel. The um, English captions that you will see now appear here for the first time, and I hope to get to 7 million hits in a few weeks. Just watch it and tell me if you agree, please. This is my desk. <laughs> 
אחד במטרה, אבל אני שווה לטוב, תצטרכת עם ליאורה, אז כדאי לך לחשוב.